Hello and welcome to Dave's Music Room. I'm David Kavlovic here with some more of my favorite recordings to present to you on this concert hall of the airwaves or my music room of the airwaves via podcasting. Today's program is rather straightforward. When I was putting it together, I realized that this would make an excellent symphonic concert. So if there are any programmers for the symphony orchestras around the world, you're welcome. I expect your check in the mail because what I've put together would work, like I said, extremely well as a concert complete with an intermission. Of course, an intermission on a podcast can be of any length anybody wants, and it's usually where I promote the show a bit more, etc., etc., etc. But let's get started with this particular episode, and we open with an overture, a work by Carl Nielsen, his Helios Overture, Opus 17, which he composed in 1903 while visiting Greece. His wife, Anne-Marie Carl Nielsen, was a sculptor who was working in Greece at the time, uh, doing bas-relief, studying bas-reliefs and statues in the Acropolis Museum, one of the very few who were allowed to do that at the time by the Greek authorities. Carl Nielsen joined his wife and spent quite a bit of time in the mountains uh, near Athens and on the Aegean Sea. In fact, it was the passage of the sun rising and setting over the Aegean Sea that inspired his Helios Overture. Now, I've pointed out that before that Carl Nielsen's music is just chock full of positive, positive energy, and this work is no exception to the rule. In fact, other than the six symphonies, this is his most popular orchestral work. It is chock full of really good vitamin D, let me tell you. Let's hear it now, performed by the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra, conducted by John Mouseri. Here is... Carl Nielsen's Helios Overture.
what a sunny composition, literally. That was the Helios Overture by Carl Nielsen, performed by the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra, conducted by John Mosseri. Well, our main entree of the first part of this program in a typical orchestral concert fashion is a concerto. And the concerto that we're going to listen to is Edward Elgar's Violin Concerto in B Minor, Opus 61. It was composed in 1910 for the violinist Fritz Kreisler, who had heard Elgar's The Dream of Gerontius in 1907 and fell in love with that work. Well, what's not to fall in love with? If you listen to my podcast for any length of time, you will have heard that I presented a wonderful performance of The Dream of Gerontius. It's a work I dearly love, and a number of you fell in love with it as well. It's an incredible work. So, of course, Fritz Kreisler wanted something of that sort composed for him. And indeed, this concerto shares the same element of drama, peace, spiritual inspiration, shall we say, as that work, even though there is no set program to the violin concerto. It's a straightforward violin concerto and a long work. It's about 50 minutes in length. The work was premiered by... Fritz Kreisler, and it was hoped that he would record the work with Sir Edward Elgar, but they never got around to it. Part of the reason being is that, well, Chrysler didn't want to tell Elgar directly, but he thought he was a terrible conductor. There may be a grain of truth to that, but Elgar did make a lot of recordings of his own music, and they're usually very good, so I'm not quite sure what to think of that. The work was recorded by Elgar, in 1916 with a violinist by the name of Marie Hall, but being recorded on just two 78s, basically four minutes a side, four sides, that's about 16 minutes. Hardly representative of the work, so it was dramatically truncated because some of the technical aspects of the work were too much for the acoustic recording horn. So this recording is really only of interest to uh, the historic collector. That would include me. It's not a very well, not a very good representation of the work per se. It took until about 1929 for a proper electric recording to be made of the work. Mind you, that's only four years after the electrical process was introduced. Again, it wasn't um, Elgar conducting that recording. The violinist was Albert Sammons. And it was the New Queen's Hall Orchestra conducted by Sir Henry Wood, a very good recording for English Columbia. It tends to be on the speedier side of things, which is one way of interpreting the work. It clocks in at about 45 minutes. But the most famous recording at that time was the one that Sir Edward Elgar eventually did in 1932, June of 1932, at Abbey Road Studio Number 1 with the young Sir Yehudi Menuhin who was only 16 at the time he made this recording. He was a child prodigy. This is a good demonstration of his abilities at that age, that he had such a maturity to perform a very emotional, grown-up work, as this three-movement violin concerto is demonstrated in this recording, is, is absolutely incredible. It has never left the catalogs. It has always been available, even through a period where Elgar's music was sort of, oh, s 
turned people turned their noses up at some of this late uh, Victorian, early Edwardian romantic music. So there was a period in, I'd say, from about the mid-1940s to the mid-1960s where his music was treated with a certain amount of disdain, though not by everybody. Nevertheless, this recording never left the catalogs, whether it was the original 78s or the LP era or even the short-lived tape era, definitely into the CD era, and now through download if you if you want to get it that way. That means that this recording has been available now for 90 years. That's how incredible the performance is. It is absolutely, absolutely ravishing. Now let the three movements speak for themselves. The first movement is a broad allegro, an absolutely gorgeous second movement, an andante, and then the third movement, an allegro molto, which makes a little bit of a quote of some of the first movement as well. And uh, typical with Elgar at times, there are quotations from very early compositions of his before he was even respected as a composer. He did like to revisit some of his youthful endeavors. They make an appearance as a sort of a nostalgic feel to this concerto. So let's listen to this recording now. As I pointed out, the sessions were, um, well, that's interesting. One note tells me they were June, but according to the program notes on the CD, the dates given are the 14th and 15th of July. I'm going to go with that. Recorded 14th, 15th, July, 1932, in studio number one, the big studio in Abbey Road. Yes, that's the studio where the Beatles recorded their Abbey Road disc. But Edward Elgar was the first person to record in that studio when it opened, by the way, just so you know. Here is his absolutely gorgeous violin concerto in B minor, opus 61. The soloist is Sir Yehudi Menuhin, and Sir Edward Elgar conducts the London Symphony Orchestra.
Edward Elgar's Violin Concerto in B minor, Opus 61, a very famous and very passionate performance, recorded in 1932 by the violinist Yehudi Menuhin with the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Sir Edward Elgar. That concerto was Elgar's last big public success. Even his second symphony, which was composed afterwards, did not achieve as great a success, at least at the time as the violin concerto. Not that Elgar's star had completely diminished, but public tastes were changing even at that point in time, which is one of the reasons why I think Elgar fell by the wayside as a composer late in the uh, period, especially after the Second World War, where I'm sure people felt very disillusioned about a lot of things. He wasn't the only composer to suffer that fate anywhere in Europe, to be honest. Fortunately, the work never left the repertoire, as I pointed out. There have been other modern recordings. There are other modern recordings of this concerto. Yehudi Menuhin also recorded it later on in stereo. But this particular recording is very poignant. I'd like to remind you that right now you are a guest in my music room. It is intermission time, as it would be if this was an actual symphony concert. So take the opportunity to refresh your beverage or get a snack to eat or maybe even go for a pinkelpause, as the Germans like to say. I'll wait. I'll be here. Just press the pause button. Okay, you're back. Good. We can carry on. As I say, I'd like to remind you, you're a guest in my music room and I would like to hear from you from time to time. Please send me an email at kapustadave at yahoo.ca. You can find that email address on the page you use to listen to this podcast. I would also like to remind you that I have a radio show in my city of Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, the capital of Canada. Beautiful city. I love living here. And a great radio station that's been part of the Ottawa scene since the mid 70s, CKCU FM 93.1. CKCU, CU, the CU in CKCU stands for Carleton University. It was the first radio station in North America that was a campus radio station that also had community outreach, a model that other universities and other campuses across the continent have taken as their own. My show is called Music for a While. It's on Wednesday mornings. 10 o'clock Eastern Standard Time is when the broadcast is. As a mid-week, mid-morning coffee break, you can listen to it on the FM dial if you're in the area, or you can stream it live at 10 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, or you can listen to it on demand. All the episodes are available for your listening pleasure that way. Now, the second half of the program, I'm presenting a work that I just absolutely adore. I adore a lot of pieces of music, but this one in particular, it's Maurice Ravel's longest composition, which is interesting. And it reminded me that, yes, he never wrote a very long opera, like the way Debussy did with Pelias and Melisande, which is about three hours long. Ravel did write two operas, but they're both short. This work is even longer. It's his ballet Daphne et Chloé which was written for Sergei Diaghilev's Ballet Russe and presented at the Théâtre du Châtelet in 1912. It was presented just days after the scandalous presentation of Debussy's Prelude de la Prémédi d'une Faune with Nijinsky dancing, apparently rather lewdly. 
It was the scandal before the big scandal of 1913, which was Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring. I played that a couple of weeks ago. The conductor, by the way, of both The Rite of Spring and Daphne and Chloe were the same for the premier's Pierre Monteux. However, we're not going to listen to Pierre Monteux's recording of the complete ballet. Now, the work, by the way, is also known in two orchestral suites that uh, Ravel had fashioned from uh, the selections of the ballet. The first orchestral suite is probably the best known. It has the famous conclusion, uh, the dawn and the dance, uh, the bacchanal, which, by the way, was a bane for, best way to put it, for Ravel to compose. Apparently spent almost a year trying to compose that section. Well, well worth the effort. But the whole ballet is absolutely gorgeous. I was fortunate once to attend a rehearsal of a performance, uh, well, I heard the concert as well, of Daphne and Chloe in Toronto with the Toronto Symphony. And uh, it's great to be able to hear this one. There's just, you know, two or three people in Massey Hall with me listening to this immensely powerful work for Wordless Choir. That was controversial. And orchestra. Let me give you the story of Daphne and Chloe. The ballet begins in a sacred grove where the goatherd Dorcon unsuccessfully woos Chloe, only to be outshone by her lover Daphne. After she is captured by pirates, oh my, the nymphs console Daphne in his sorrow. The pirates celebrate with a danse guerriere and ignore Chloe's pleading. She is rescued by Pan, however. This is parts one and parts two. The ballet is divided into three parts. In part three, it opens with the famous Levé du Jour, which announces the awakening of nature and a golden dawn in ravishing orchestral colors. That's putting it mildly. Chloe is restored to Daphne, and in gratitude, the two lovers mime the legend of Pan and his passion for the nymph Syrinx. The ballet ends with various dances, which lead up to an exhilarating bacchanal. It is one of the most incredibly intense and exciting orchestral conclusions of any work you can imagine. Let's listen now to a very, very famous recording by the French conductor Jean Martineau, who was absolutely expert at conducting French repertoire. This is a recording that dates from 1975, and it features the choir of the Théâtre National de l'Opéra Paris, 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 <laughs> and the Orchestre de Paris. Let's listen now to this incredible performance of Maurice Ravel's ballet, Daphne et Chloé.
frenetic bacchanal concludes Maurice Ravel's exquisite ballet Daphne et Chloé. We heard a performance by the choir of the Théâtre National de l'Opéra and the Orchestre de Paris under the direction of Jean Martineau. Recording made for EMI, His Master's Voice, or La Voix de Son Maître and Pade in France. The recording was made in Paris at the Salle Vagram on the, uh, in July. There's no date specific to days. Sometimes they do that. But it was recorded in July 1974. So it's still a fabulous performance some almost 50 years later. Great, great performance. Well, what can one follow that work with? Absolutely nothing. And why should anything follow it? It speaks for itself. It's a great conclusion to a symphonic concert, which we've sort of replicated on this podcast. So what I must do now is have you vacate the theater, since the ushers must come and clean things up, the wine cups that are left by the wayside. Oh, I really hate that. I really preferred concerts, to be honest, when people were not allowed to bring in beverages or snacks at the concert hall. That may be me, but you know, it just makes for a mess. But you could have your cup of tea or whatever you were drinking while you were listening to this, because it's in your own environment, and I trust you clean up after yourselves. I certainly clean up after me on account of I'm married. Yeah, you know what I mean. Anyhow, that's it for today. I invite you to join me again next week. I would say same time, same place, but you can listen to this podcast anytime you want. But you are certainly a guest in my music room. I also invite you to listen to my radio show, which does have a scheduled time. So same time, same place would apply to that on CKCU FM 93.1. As I mentioned earlier, it's broadcast at 10 o'clock on Wednesdays, called Music for a While, but you can listen to it anytime you want as well as a on-demand program. Until next time, I'm David Kavlovic. Take care of yourselves and thank you for listening.